0: Quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Melman. Canva is
1: great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. At canva.com, designed for work.
2: I thought, okay, I don't know any kids. (laughs) I don't relate to kids. I don't like kids. (laughs) Sign me up! (laughs) Because I just thought, nothing's going to put me outside of my comfort zone like this.
0: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Chip
2: Kidd talks about his design book for children and how he got to be in the new Star Wars movie. It's really a story about a friend helping another friend grieve.
1: Chipkid has been on the podcast before. Four times, actually, I went back to the archives and counted. He's been on to talk about a novel he wrote. He's been on to talk about the fabulous book covers he's been designing at Knopf for decades. He's been on with Chris Ware to talk about graphic novels. More recently, he's been on to talk about his book, Go! A Kid's Guide to Graphic Design. That book is now out in paperback and there's so much more to talk about, like his Batman exhibits and his cameo in the last Star Wars movie, just to mention two of his latest projects. Chip Kid, welcome back to Design Matters.
2: Thank you so much. I can't believe you wanted you want me back again. Of but course. I'm, I'm so grateful and I just want to say thank you for creating design matters. I mean, Mm, what an incredible, incredible achievement. It's just... Yeah, thank you. And I'm proud to call you my friend.
1: Oh, Chip, you know that I I, I call you my brother.
2: <laughs> well, all right. I, I, You're I'm my family. I'm proud to call you my sister then.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And hi there, Mrs. Kidd. <laughs> mm, hi, Mom. <laughs> um, Chip, I want to start by asking you about something that I seem to have missed in our four previous interviews, which I've subsequently regretted and wanted to ask you about now. You designed the original Jurassic Park book cover in 1990, Mm -hmm. which subsequently was used in the 1993 movie directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And since then, that same logo has been part of the five additional movies, the most recent being the blockbuster summer hit Jurassic World Dominion. It's also on thousands, if not millions, of merchandising and promotional items. Is it true that the original Jurassic Park book logo was really dark green?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, First of all, just to clarify, the original book jacket is just the typography and then the drawing of the dinosaur and the drawing of the dinosaur, which I did both. But the drawing of the dinosaur is what they used for the logo. Yes. So, so the lettering is by somebody else and all of that.
1: Okay, yes, we but, must be accurate about every bit of the credit.
2: Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And, um, But yes... <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking for with a couple things with that that cover, but, the, like, the drop shadow on his name, like, why is it there? <laughs> um, <laughs> Design I mean, maybe, regrets. Maybe somebody had, had said his name needs to pop more or something. But, yeah, from a distance, it looks like it's— the dinosaur looks like it's black, but then when you get up real close to a first edition <laughs> in a, in the unforgiving light of day, you can see that it's a, it's a dark green. And I think what I was thinking was— <laughs> Something about primordial ooze. Ah. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> what is the strangest thing you've seen the logo on?
2: A human body. Really? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, so yeah. people
1: have tattoos. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say something about the toaster. I know there's a Jurassic Park toaster.
2: Well, which you were so sweet to give me. Um, they made a toaster that upon putting the piece of bread in and pushing the button, when it pops up, the logo is on it. And I, I will admit, I have it in the box, but I haven't opened the box. It's Cause, probably cause worth more not opening it. <laughs> the, kind of, the kind of guy I am. But, yeah.
1: All of the history of the logo and the identity, is now shared in another new book that's come out about Jurassic Park that actually has been published by Topps, the card company.
2: It's actually been published by Abrams. Oh, okay. Um, But But. it's, Abrams publishes these, and they're beautifully done, these collections of Topps collector cards. So they've done like Star Wars and Wacky Packages and Mars Invades. So then they were going to do Jurassic Park and the editor of this series is my dear friend Charlie Kochman at Abrams. And he suggested, I guess, to Topps, and including Universal, that I write an afterword. And so I did. And, you know, they had to vet everything. And I basically just explained again how this happened with photographic evidence. And they published it. So... For me, it's a very meaningful hallmark for me because it's the first time that Universal Pictures is acknowledging that I did this because I'm never in the movie credits. Haven't received a
1: penny of the proceeds.
2: That is certainly true. So there it is. It's in print with the stamp of approval by Universal Pictures. I'm glad that it's at least acknowledged that way. Like when I was, I did two TED Talks and the first TED Talk was basically like, this is who I am and this is what I do. And I very much wanted to make creating Jurassic Park a big part of that because I want this, I want, hmm, I don't know. I was gonna say I want to own it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I want to own the fact that I did it.
1: Absolutely, as you should. It's one of the most recognizable logos of the 20th century, and now it's continuing into the 21st. I mean, it's so interesting that they rebooted the movie. They rebooted it with all new actors, only in this third movie are, are Laura Dern and and the rest of the some of the rest of the cast back. But the logo's but been there logo's the same. for all six movies. So That's it was, incredible. It is.
2: It Even the amazing. Star Wars
1: logo has changed a bit over the years. Right. But the Jurassic Park logo hasn't. No. And um, the new book is really beautiful. Um, one thing I found in my research that I didn't see the, the, in any of the previous times that I've interviewed you is... A fax that Michael Crichton actually sent to Sonny Maida, which is it with has, you know, so the normal heading of a fax, the to from the date, et cetera. And then in giant typewritten letters, it says, wow, fucking fantastic jacket. And I thought that
2: was pretty cool, too. Yeah. Boy, those were the days. Faxes. Faxes.
1: (laughs) Chip, you were born in Shillington, Berks County in Pennsylvania, and I know as a child... You were enthralled by pop culture, and I'd love to remind you that in the prologue to your first monograph, you stated, I did not grow up yearning to become a book designer. What I wanted to be was Chris Partridge on The Partridge Family.
2: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I still don't understand why you were so fascinated with Chris, especially since two actors played the same character. I know, and that
2: was fascinating, too.
1: What was it about Chris that enthralled you so?
2: I wanted to be a drummer and that i did sort of become but the idea that he's like 8 years old or whatever it is and he's the drummer of this band i uh i was just obsessed with that show i was too and and the music was so good in that sense it was sort of like the monkeys it would be so easy to write it off but the music was terrific.
1: Yeah, I think the music actually holds up. I think Point Me in the direction of Al- Albuquer- Albuquerque, Albuquerque is one of their great unsung hits right. that deserves a lot more recognition. I loved that show. Yeah, There was something about the dynamic of this family without a dad. With Which
2: they never talk about.
1: Never, never with these... Little kids being part of a, a big band. Um, I had a massive crush on Susan Day, but I also mm. had a bit of a crush on Danny Bonaduce as well. I mean, I love them all. Bobby Sherman still to this day. I love Bobby Sherman. Right. Yeah. Um, your mom was very supportive of your interests and I think in many ways was sort of the the catalyst to a lot of what you ended up loving. I know she made you Batman costumes every year um, for Halloween. And 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 talk about how she influenced your thinking about cartoons and comics and
2: characters. Well, it was my mom and my dad. I mean, actually, when it came to the cartoon characters, it was much more dad than mom. Because he wasn't trying to taunt my brother and I, but he, he would— tell us that he had Superman number one. He had the, you know, the Superman number one comic and the Batman number one comic. And he had all this stuff when he was a kid, but then it all got tossed (laughs) into the paper drive for World War II. But he was a, a sort of a terrific cartoonist who pursued chemical engineering instead. But I remember going up into the attic in the house that I grew up in and just poking around and I would find his old chemistry textbooks and he would have cartoons in the margins. And I, I was just fascinated by that. I think the difference between my parents and me is that I felt I could pursue an actual career doing something creative, whereas I think for them they were much more pragmatic Like I said, my dad was a chemical engineer. My mom was uh, what used to be called a personnel manager, which we now call human resources. And they both did creative things on the side for fun. And I wanted to do a creative thing as my main job, hopefully for fun, but hopefully to, to, to get a salary. My mom, her brilliant creative thing was she was a seamstress. When we were really little, she would make our clothes, my brother and I, Brother Walt. And she would make our clothes and she would have these little, there would be these little junior league fashion shows. And we're like three and five years old, you know, tramping down the runway in these little onesies that she made. (laughs) It's so funny. But yeah, then then when we went to um, elementary school for Halloween every year, my brother and I would think up what we wanted to be. And for about, I'd say, five to eight years, they would figure out what we wanted to be. So, I mean, it was Batman and Robin right away. Then for me, uh, Captain America, Zorro, Captain Marvel, the DC Captain Marvel. My brother wanted to be Hawkman one year. There were these dolls, the Silver Knight and the Gold Knight. They were like G.I. Joes, but they were knights and had all this armor, and he wanted to be, I think, the Gold Knight. So they were very... Nurturing and loving and, and sweet in, in this regard, yeah.
1: You recently gave one of the costumes to Anderson Cooper. Talk about why and the worldwide sensation that that costume has become. <laughs> well, I think you're,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you're exaggerating a little bit. Um, Not really. I had designed book jackets for Anderson's mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, for what seemed like forever, like since 1991. And that came about because she was published by Knopf. And somehow her jackets started getting assigned to me. And that's how I got to meet her. And she was just amazing and fascinating and sweet. And, but, you know, this window into this whole other world... One of the book covers that I designed for her was called A Mother's Story, which was her memoir of her older son with Wyatt Cooper taking his own life. I was just tremendously affected by that. And so through the years, she would make a book and I would do the cover. And then Anderson was publishing his first memoir, which was just after Katrina. And he wasn't out yet and it was published by HarperCollins. So for me, that was a freelance job. And that's how I met him. And he was just amazing. You know, I went to his office at CNN and I'll never forget, he had a mouse pad that was the Wonder Twins from <laughs> Super Friends, Zan and <laughs> yeah. Jaina, you know, shape of a this and form of a that. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's the Wonder Twins. He's like, you know what the Wonder Twins are? (laughs) I said, said, yes, I love the Wonder Twins. So I I did the cover of of that book. And then in the middle of the pandemic, I got an email from him, I think it was like June 2020, that he was going to be working on a, a history of his family, the Vanderbilt's. And it was going to be this warts and all thing. And he was inspired to do it because he had conceived a child through a surrogate, Wyatt. So long story short, I did the cover. He really liked it. He, he sent me this um, text video of him with the book. I mean, I hadn't seen it. And he wanted me to do the end papers, too. And I made it coordinate with the jacket and all this stuff. And he was all excited and... I wrote to him and I said, could I come by your house and meet Wyatt and get you to sign a book for me? And he said, sure. And then I started thinking, I have a couple of bits of these costumes that survived over the years, amazingly, that my mom made. I have the Batman cape and I have the Robin tunic, but I had this other blue cape that was I pretty sure it was used for my brother's Gold Knight costume, but it looks like a Batman cape. And I thought, I'm gonna take this and give it to him, them. And and then I had this vintage Batman, Japanese 1966, like a Halloween mask, but it's for a little kid. It's it's small. And I thought, I'm gonna bring that too. And so I did, and it was just the most lovely experience. But it, But... <laughs> hilariously i thought and and you know he starts filming and there's the nanny there it's like that's it it's like us three or four um i you know i'm wanting to take pictures but i'm thinking you know this is a private thing and but he starts taking pictures and he starts taking you know little movies and stuff and i and said so
1: the the baby is in the actual costume and he yes just... he's
2: in the mask and and the, the cape there's there's you know there's something about capes and and By, I guess, last fall, he would have been, like, 18 months. So, you know, you put the cape on him, and then he's just running around. There's just something magical about that that I think literally empowers a child. For whatever reason, I don't know. But he starts filming that, and then I'm like, can I? He's like, sure. So I start filming and taking pictures. And then he signed a book for me, and he signed a book for my mom, And we just had a lovely, I don't know, it was like an hour, hour and a half. And I just thought that was just like a lovely private thing. And I'm going to have to figure out a way to tell my mom. But I'm just going to wait because I knew. (laughs) And Debbie, you know my mom. (laughs) As soon as I tell her, she's going to want to get on a bus and come up to New York and see little white. And I should say, in the past... I was supposed to have lunch with Gloria, I believe it was the fall of 2016, and Gloria had suffered a fall and she couldn't do it. And so she wrote to me, I'm so sorry. And Anderson wrote to me and said, "You know, look, I'm really sorry that she can't do it, but is there anything that I could do? And my mom and my aunt, Sil were coming to New York So we were his guest at CNN for like two hours. He's just the best. He is exactly what you see on TV. He's just a great, great guy. But anyway, so I I just thought I can't... I'm going to tell my mom, but I was like just putting it off because I'm sure she was going to like call the local paper and (laughs) have them put it on page one. And so the following week, my mom goes to this meeting of... She's on the... One of these committees for the local symphony, for the Reading Symphony, it's the ladies committee or whatever they call it. And one of the, these women said, well, that's really something about, you know, Anderson giving the cape that you made for Chip to his little boy. And my mom's like, what are you talking about? The previous day he had gone on CBS Sunday Morning. I think it was Gail King said, what are you going to do? Are, are you going to take him out for Halloween? And he said, I'm not sure, but if we do, I have the perfect costume. And he told the whole story. <laughs> and so that cat was out of the bag. And then he told it again on Drew Barrymore. <laughs> yes. And he told it again on Stephen Colbert. And, you know, Your I Your
1: mom's now getting orders right, for little right, Batman exactly. costumes.
2: No, I, just got, I, I got the biggest kick out of it. But I, I should add, that evening... After I had given him that stuff, he texted me and he's like, Are you sure you want to give this away? Because if you want it back, I will totally understand. And I said, this means so much to me that you have this and that he has it. And I said, Oh, and by the way, and I sent him a couple other pictures of the stuff that I still do have. So
1: Well, it's it's sort of giving a whole new life to yeah. to these wonderful things that were handmade with lots and lots of love. Yeah, exactly. Talk about your love of Batman. You've been called a Bat-maniac,
2: which mm-hmm. I'd never
1: heard. I'd never heard that term until I did the research for this show. What fuels it? What fuels that that passion?
2: I feel like at this point, it's such a universal thing. But I think... The, I mean, the gateway drug was the Adam West 1966 TV show. And the fact that I have a brother who was two years older. I was... I think I was two when the show came out, so he would have been four. We were the perfect audience for it at the perfect time, and it was just so mesmerizing as a kid and exciting and, you know, like this crazy other world where they... I think it's the escapist aspect of it, and part of that is that he's a billionaire, you know? You start to fantasize, like you know it would cost money to be bad and <laughs> to do it properly with the car and all of that i and then as i was growing up there were all these other you know the sh- the show sort of came and went that was pretty quick but then the comic books really picked up on the much darker origins of the strip and dc comics was very good about like constantly reprinting the original stories so i that was a revelation to me That it was like dark and scary and the the Joker was like really scary and killing people in mysterious ways and announcing it on the radio and just fascinating. And I just I don't know. I just I just never got over it.
1: Which is your favorite Batman portrayal? Aside from Adam West.
2: Right. The cop out answer is the voice actor Kevin Conroy on the animated series. I think he's he's near perfect. I think, in terms of like the movie portrayals, oh, it's just so hard to say because at, at this point there's so many. I, I I was very impressed with Robert Pattinson. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, yeah my I nephew would, too. I he's. was impressed with him, and I thought the costume was great. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, and this this is a whole other geeky discussion. I think Christian Bale was the best Bruce Wayne. Again, I love the millionaire, playboy, carefree aspect of that. So that's his disguise that you would never guess that he was this other thing. Right. And they did away with that in the most recent movie. And I I wasn't so crazy about that.
1: You recently curated an art show at Artspace in Louisiana titled Batman Black and White. And it features an extraordinary selection of over 150 original Batman drawings that you commissioned from artists including Alex Ross, Frank Miller, Neil Gaiman, Ross Chast, even Gloria Vanderbilt. And the project really began back in 2012 when DC Comics invited you to write a story for their Batman black and white anthology comics title, which was based on their hugely popular 1996 publication. How did it grow into an exhibit of this significance?
2: It was a total accident, and I don't know how easy this or or effectively I can explain this, you know, on a podcast. But basically, when issue number one that had my story in it came out, by then I think it was October 13. It was New York Comic Con, and they issued it with different covers. And one of the covers is what's called a blank variant. So it's this uncoated cardstock cover that is just blank white except it has the logo of the the comic on it. And the idea was, is, they do it to this day. You get that version and you go to a convention or you go to a show or you go to whatever and, and where there's artists and you, you know, wait in line and get Neil Adams to draw on it or get your favorite artist to draw on it. And so as his... My temperament. I became completely obsessed. I started buying these things up on eBay, just thinking of like like who? And it was a really interesting exercise. And first of all, there have been people who I wanted to draw Batman for me, you know, for a long, long time, who don't normally draw a Batman. Like who? Well, you know, Art Spiegelman, this Dutch cartoonist, Joost Svarta. I mean, so you know, a lot of the raw artists, Charles Burns. Uh, Kim Deitch, Gary Panter, it was this strange opportunity to at least like tug on their sleeve and say, would you do this? And, you know, 165 people said yes.
1: Isn't that incredible? (laughs) It is. What surprised you most as you were collecting these pieces of art from these extraordinary artists?
2: What surprised me the most? Well, what surprised me is what they'd come up with. Like some people would say, what do you want? And then others would have some crazy idea that they just wanted to do. Like one of the most recent ones that I got over the um, pandemic is by this amazing artist who goes by R. Kikuyo Johnson. He's just a brilliant illustrator and he does covers for the new yorker and he just released a new graphic novel it he uses a very clear line and i had been wanting to get in touch with him for years to try and publish a graphic novel by him at pantheon finally he did a cover for the new yorker called waiting and it's this sole asian woman alone i don't know if you remember it on the subway track looking at her watch yeah with this furtive look on her face like train, please get here now. And it was just so timely and moving. And that's what finally nudged me to like, come on, get a hold of this guy. But he, he's like, yeah, all right. I actually have an idea for that. So I sent him the, the book with a return slip. And I mean, it's brilliant. But it, So Batman is laying on his back and he's trapped by this giant... Chicken that has the Joker's head on it that's menacing him. And it's brilliantly done, but it's like, where the hell did <laughs> that come from? Wow. What does this mean? <laughs> and he's just like, I've just always been fascinated by this idea.
1: Interesting. <laughs> well, that's what makes him... The brilliant genius he is. He
2: is. He is indeed.
1: There was also a, a rather risque cover of Batman and Robin kissing.
2: Yes, that's Art Spiegelman.
1: Talk about that if you can.
2: That's a reference to his, I guess, infamous New Yorker cover where he has the Hasidic man kissing the African-American woman. Plus he did it in color. That was that was the interesting thing. Um, if people wanted to do things in color, that was fine with me.
1: You've written extensively about Batman. Your books about the Cape Crusader include Batman Collected, Batman Animated, which garnered two of the comic book industry's highest awards, the Eisner Awards, and Batman, The Complete History. Do you anticipate a Batman black and white will also become a book?
2: I would love that, but the problem is it, it, it would be a permissions nightmare. I've actually pursued it. It got as far as... Somebody at DC had drawn up a release form. I got a bunch of the artists to sign it, but there was a bunch of them that would not sign it. Mm. They're like, if you want to use this in a book, fine. But I'm there's no way, because I, I can't remember what the release language was, but it was basically the artist can't republish it without DC's permission, and DC can't republish their art without their permission. Mm. One day, I will try and self-publish it, just so that it exists. But that would be a lot of work. But I'd I'd really like to do that.
1: Yeah, I think it should be. It should be made. Or maybe a catalog from the shows. Yeah. Batman is not the only comic character you have worked with. You have also designed the trilogy, Superman, the Complete History, and Wonder Woman, the Complete History, for Chronicle Books. Several books about the art of Alex Ross, which are magnificent. Um, Peanuts, the art of Charles M. Scholes, and so many more. One of your upcoming projects is a book titled Spider-Man, Panel by Panel. Tell us about that.
2: Well, that is going to be, uh, again, that's Abrams and my friend Charlie Kochman, who made the connection, because you know, it all has to be sanctioned by Marvel. And it's taking... Uh, Spider-Man first appeared in a comic book called Amazing Fantasy Number no. Fifteen in 1962, and that was an immediate hit. And then Spider-Man Number no. One f- quickly followed. And so, what we're doing is a photographic re-examination of both of them, so going super close up with the camera, because the, by now, I mean, my God. A copy of Amazing Fantasy number 15 just sold for like three $3 million. Wow. It's just insane to try and find original. But Charlie hunted down or found a collector who had this that had not sealed it in plexiglass, who allowed us to photograph it. So it will allow the fans to see what it was like to have this comic book in 1962, like up close. It's almost like you're under the covers in your bedroom with the flashlight, you yeah. know, looking at it. That's the kind of effect. And and plus, some mysterious donor had the original art by Steve Ditko to the Spider-Man origin story from Amazing Fantasy number 15 and donated it to the Library of Congress. They were going to allow us to photograph it, but COVID restrictions prevented that, but they're photographing it to our specifications. So you'll get to see the original art too, which is always so fascinating.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at
0: canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.
1: In 2019, you collaborated with J.J. Abrams, different from Abrams' book publisher, J.J. <laughs> Abrams' The Man, on the comic Spider-Man number no. 1, which featured a unique die cut. How did that project come about, and how did you go about making that cover?
2: I mean, J.J.'s a friend. He... Hired me to well, he hired me through Paramount Pictures to do a, a print campaign for a movie that he was producing called Morning Glory, and this was quite some time ago. The movie didn't do much business, but the experience was great, and the and the print campaign turned out really well, and and we became friends from that. And he and his son, one of his sons, Henry, I guess, pitched to Marvel. We want to do our own take on Spider-Man and it'll be six issues long. The first one had like three or four variants and they asked me to do one of the variants. And so I researched what had been done before in terms of like really like zooming in on the Spider-Man mask and the classic eye. And so I decided to do that, but I wanted to see if, the, if they would allow a die cut hole so that it, when you open it up, There's something else revealed underneath. I did what you're really not supposed to do as a freelancer. I sent it to J.J. first before sending it to Marvel. (laughs) And so he sort of like fell in love with it. And Marvel didn't want to spend the money because it's extra money. And J.J. insisted. And so he prevailed and it like totally sold out. And so then... (laughs) Then the Marvel art director approached me and said, well, actually, we're, we're doing a new Wolverine, number one, and we're doing a new Spider-Woman, number one. Can you do Daika covers for those?
1: One of the most unique things about you is how you're able to make things happen. The Through the sheer sort of will and creativity of your spirit— And one of my my favorite stories that I really want you to share with our audience because it really is about manifesting a reality that you want to make happen is your experience with J.J. Abrams and your cameo in the last Star Wars movie. If there was ever a story about persistence and grit and manifesting something that you want more than anything, this is the story.
2: Well, I have to say, it's hard for me to talk about this. It's really a story about a friend helping another friend grieve. So my wonderful, beautiful husband, um, Sandy McClatch, we'd been together for 20 years and he became ill, and I was a caregiver. And and through that time, J.J. would write periodically, because he had met him, and we had spent time, and, and, you know, how are you doing, and how is he doing? And, and So by the summer of 2018, I was alone. And I got this notion, actually, from Chris Ware, who had visited the set of The Force Awakens. Because when he was over in... England getting some sort of award and they were filming that back then and Chris had told me about this experience and I just wrote to JJ out of the blue and said you know I'm actually I'm going to be in London this for a while this fall could I come by the set and maybe like be a stormtrooper or something or something <laughs> <laughs> and he he wrote back and he said we'll figure something out for you and I'm going to hand you over to my my AD Josh, and you can work it out with him. And so, for two weeks, November into December of of 2018, I was on the set in Pinewood, and they'd like thrown together this costume for me, but they also they also. So you weren't a stormtrooper? You actually? No, I wasn't. You show up on
1: screen as not you, but you know, right? Your I mean, faces, mean, chip ha- kid's face. I
2: have a beret and a leather trench coat. The thing is, like, if you if you don't know to look for me, I'm actually in it three times. Yes. But if you don't know to look for me, like, blink and you'll and you'll miss it. But but for I'm I'm in what passes for the cantina scene where three of the leads are sneaking through trying to evade. Kylo ran and it, but as Daisy Ridley and Oscar Isaac and Anthony Daniels his C3PO are like sneaking through this bar and as the band is playing, and'm I'm, I'm sitting at the bar chatting with this like giant creature thing. And that was just wild.:
1: So not only did you have this wonderful costume made for you, I know that they also gave you a book to hold.:
2: They gave me a prop book. They took um, my book Go. And they made a Star Wars version of it. Uh, (laughs) It was just so touching, the effort that they went to. And that that was all JJ.
1: I know you've been a Star Wars fan since you were quite young. And when you were a little boy, you made a Star Wars scrapbook. Talk about that. (laughs) Why are you laughing?
2: (laughs) Uh, Yes, I made this scrapbook. And it had, for some reason, David Prowse, who was the physical embodiment of, of Darth Vader, I guess, was doing this tour. This was way before Comic-Cons existed. This would have been like the late 1970s, and he came to our local department store, Boscov's, and I waited in line and got him to sign it, and this scrapbook that I had that... It's not a scrapbook. It was a notebook. It was a spiral notebook that had Darth Vader on the front, and then I started putting stuff in it. Many years later, when I was helping um, my parents to move... I found it in their storage unit. So when I went over to the on the set, I gave it to JJ as a as a present.
1: Could you imagine what little chip kid would have thought when he was making that scrapbook that one day you'd end up on not only in, on the set but in three scenes <laughs> in the movie, the the final chapter I, of this. What what
2: can one say? Nine um, film no. saga.
1: Yeah. I know that it's a it's a hard story in that you were grieving quite terribly during that yeah. time but I also think it's a really beautiful story about sort of manifesting something that you really want to help your spirit.
2: Yeah, and something that he was willing to to Yeah, shows give JJ's me. generosity yeah. for sure.
1: Um, I want to talk about Go, but I also want to talk about so many of your other books. You attended Pennsylvania State University, where you graduated in 1986 with a degree in graphic design, which you've written about in The Cheese Monkeys and in The Learners, your novels. Afterwards, you were hired as a junior assistant designer at Knopf, where you still work today. Yeah. All these years later. Yeah. In addition to working as the associate art director now, you are also editor-at-large for the graphic novels division. I think it's safe to say that you've designed over 2,000 book covers, book jackets.
2: I I would think at this point, yeah. Yeah,
1: because— In our last interview, which was several years ago, it was at the 1,500, 1,600 mark. So I was trying to do the math. So the covers include work for Cormac McCarthy, David Sedaris, Donna Tartt, Whoopi Goldberg, Oliver Sacks, John Updike, James Elroy, who stated that you are the world's greatest book jacket designer. And he's not lying. Time Out New York stated that the history of book design can be split into two eras, before graphic designer Chip Kidd and after. So I'd like to talk about some of your recent covers because you really are in a whole new zone now with some of the work that you're doing, which is magnificent. First, you designed Billy G. King's memoir, All In, which immediately became a New York Times bestseller. What was that process like? What is it like to work with these sort of legends, living legends?
2: I'll tell you. I mean, the process was so different because it was by then... We were in the pandemic, and I was down in a little studio in my apartment, so it was all virtual. I mean, I think had the world not changed, I would have been taking meetings with her at the office, and as it was, there was a a lot of Zoom. It's interesting when you work with somebody of that, at that level, (laughs) they have a team, And she very much wanted the team involved. And it turned out fine, but it was just a lot of time, you know, talking to this person and that person and then sort of explaining why I was doing what I was doing. But she was great, and she knew Charles Schultz, and they were friends. And so, I don't know, somebody did their homework and knew that I had that history. So I think that, helped. The big question was what image of her would we put on the front? And we as a publisher really, really wanted like a vintage action shot of her on the court. And she was saying, but that's not who I am anymore. I'm an activist now. That was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And so you have to listen No matter who the author is, uh, you have to listen to them if they have strong ideas about what they want. And um, so we tried, I tried, you know, a couple of options where, all right, here you are now on the front. But, you know, look at this amazing (laughs) shot of you nailing this. And so she, I guess, acquiesced is the word. And so we put the big photo of her now on the back and this great action shot on the front. And I think it really did what it was supposed to do.
1: Rodrigo Corral, another great book designer, puts up a lot of rejected covers on his Instagram, which is so interesting to see. Many, many, many times, I think, some of the rejected covers are far better than what ended up going to market. How do you present different options to a client, whether it be a Knopf, whether it be one of your freelance clients, that shows a range of work that both provides the type of work that the client might be expecting to see, but then also takes them to a whole other place that surprises them. Because that's really what you're known for. You're known for breaking paradigms, doing work that's never been done before. How do you get clients to feel safe enough to take those risks?
2: Because in most cases, we've been working together for so long. So like, Haruki Murakami just trusts me. Uh, This latest new one for for Cormac McCarthy, he, he just trusts me. Now, sadly, after doing this for almost 36 years and counting, a lot of the authors are gone. Michael Crichton, John Updike, I mean, uh, you, they
1: were they had in their contracts that you were their designer for
2: their book. Some of them did. Oliver Sachs. I think if you have a reputation that you've built up over a long time, people will at least look at what you've done, you know, thoughtfully consider it. And then it goes from there. You know, the editor has a say, the publisher has a say, sales has a say, marketing. But I think with, with me. I have a certain reputation, so they'll at least take it seriously. But again, no matter what kind of reputation I have, if the author doesn't like it, that's just it, and you have to start over.
1: How often does somebody like Murakami or Cormac McCarthy say, "Mm -mm, sorry, Chip, this isn't a winner?
2: It happened with Cormac McCarthy on the road, and that's kind of like hard to explain. What it came down to was that that book was so personal to him, and it was an allegory about something else in his life, that he started micromanaging it in a way that he didn't on the other four books that I designed for him. Like, he didn't want his name on the front, which made our editor-in-chief's head explode, (laughs) and, you know, it can become very tricky,
1: You recently worked on three book jackets for Haruki Murakami, First Person Singular, Murakami Tea, and Writing as a Vocation. Yeah. Were they all different types of experiences? Completely. In what, what one?
2: Well, and what I just, I love about designing for him is that you sort of start from scratch every time. And those are three completely different books. So First Person Singular is short stories. Murakami Tea is this sort of little gift book that's about his T-shirt collection. (laughs) And he's got all these stories about them. It's really interesting. And then the new one that's coming out this fall is Writing as a Vocation. It's precisely what it's about. It's about his writing process. So those are three completely different things. And you just have to consider what's the book about and how are you going to convey to the reader What's Murakami doing now? Like the new one writing as a vocation, I made the letter M into a huge labyrinth. So writing as is going into the labyrinth and then coming out at the bottom is a little arrow of vocation. And so the visual metaphor is going through all these starts and stops and false endings to get finally where you need to go.
1: Do you start by sketching? Do you start on the computer? How do you work?
2: You know what? I've never been a sketcher. Like back in what, a sophomore in college, one of our graphic design classes what we we were had to keep a sketchbook. And that that was work. Like doing the actual assignments, that was much easier than actually having to document them <laughs> in a sketchbook cuz it's just not my temperament. I do all the sketching up in my head. And if there's something that I need executed by somebody else, like a photographer, what have you, then maybe I'll make a sketch and say, hey, we want, you know, like a monkey raising his hand or something like that. But, it's
1: so interesting when people work in their heads like that. Roxanne writes, my wife Roxanne writes an entire essay in her head yeah. before she starts typing.
2: Now that is amazing because writing is a whole other thing for me. Yeah, no, no, I, I need to be at the keyboard and... Uh, Writing and, and writing in InDesign.
1: Well, what's interesting is that you're not only just a designer, you're also a writer and an editor. You've written several novels and you've edited two important books over the last year Original Sisters by Anita Kuntz and Our Colors by Gangora Tagame.
2: Yeah.
1: How do you pivot back and forth between these different vocations?
2: I'm hugely grateful for it. I mean, especially in the last two years, I've been so grateful to have work to do because I was just in isolation for so long, you know, down in my place in South Florida and um, how do you pivot? I'm a fan of all of it. Like, I really love it. And so that really helps. (laughs) If, like, if I was, I can't imagine how people work on things that's assigned to them that they don't want to do. That just, and and that's like most people. (laughs) I mean, occasionally I'll I'll have to do a book cover for something that I'm not all that interested in, but I can get interested in it. You know, computer coding in nineteen forty or whatever. You know, like if that's not something normally I would Yeah, you, know, you and pursue. Michael
1: Bailey would have that ability to sort of find something interesting about anything.
2: Well, I mean anything that's thrown at me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How do you go about finding and inquiring books? Because you do that. You look for graphic novels to publish.
2: It's a totally organic process. In the case of Original Sisters by Anita Coons, I had known her for a long time. I had known her work for a long time. I think she's absolutely brilliant. It had never occurred to me to publish any of her work because she's not what we call a sequential artist. She's not a graphic novelist. Uh, which is mainly what I'm looking for. And so a couple months into the pandemic, I got this proposal from her email. And she she had (laughs) originally called it The Originals. I was stunned. It's a book of portraits of women in history, some of whom you know, but a lot of whom you don't. And then her researching of them. And so you have people to bounce things off of. And so I sent it to some of my colleagues and said... I think this is kind of great. What do you think? And they're like, yeah, we think this is really kind of great. And so that's a submission. Um, the Gengar Tagame, Our Colors, I pursued that. And, and we had published him previously, in, very successfully. So that makes it much easier to do like the next project.
1: How involved are you in the editing process when you acquire a
2: book? That's a really good question. Sometimes not at all. Sometimes intensely, like I'm publishing this graphic novel by this guy, a wonderful Toronto cartoonist and illustrator named Maurice Velikoup. And he was just in town and we were working on that. And it's really one of the first graphic novel because usually we get them fully formed. And I'll like have a couple of ideas and we have a copy editing department that's going to take care of that stuff. But with this, it's with this. Uh, the book by Maurice Falcoop is called "I'm So Glad We Had This Time Together," and it's a memoir. And he had a difficult family, and he was—they were very conservative, and he was gay, and he wanted to be an artist, and they were all upset about that. And it's—I mean, we've been working on this thing for ten years. Wow. I think it's finally going to come out in the spring of what twenty-four. But that this is one like I've really been putting input into, like really actually editing. Usually editing a graphic novel means, be, for me, means being a sort of ambassador for it into the publishing house. And you have all these, like, sort of duties that you have to do, like, you have to do an audio presentation for the sales force so they can listen to it in their car or now at home or, you know, that's part of the editorial process at Pantheon and Knopf.
1: You have a book that has been recently published. It is the paperback version of Go, A Kid's Guide to Graphic Design. Congratulations. Thank you. What made you decide to create a book about graphic design for kids in the first place?
2: Well, as I've said in every interview about this, uh, it was not my idea. I cannot claim ownership of the idea. It was this amazing woman named uh, Raquel Jaramillo who... By now is much better known by her pen name, R.J. Palaccio. And she had been a book cover designer of great renown. She did everything for Thomas Pynchon. And then she became an editor at Workman. And she called me, I don't even remember what year it was, like 2010, 2011, and said, do you want to have lunch? There's a project I want to talk to you about. And I said, sure. And I thought, I just thought it would be a book cover that she wanted me to do. And so we met, and she said, okay, unless I'm mistaken, no one's ever created a book to teach graphic design to kids. And as soon as she said it, like this flash went off in my head. I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. I can't think of one. And she said, yes, and I think you should do it. And I just thought, I probably said this in the last interview we did about this, but I thought... Okay, I don't know any kids. <laughs> I don't relate to kids. I don't like kids. <laughs> Sign me up. Because <laughs> I just thought nothing's going to put me outside of my comfort zone like this. But what was great about it, and at times frustrating, was, okay, rethink all this. Like, I learned these things in college. But now, what do I say to a 10-year-old? It. Forced me to rethink about what graphic design is, about what the components are, how to teach somebody about it who doesn't have a lot of life experience.
1: How do you go about doing that? How do you go about teaching somebody something where they don't really have the construct in which to potentially envision it on their own?
2: You have to... One of the things that Raquel said from the beginning was don't talk down to them. Don't talk down to your audience. And I, and I had sort of figured that out with kids despite all of what I just said. It's like talk to them like they're a peer and not like they're 10. And they're going to take you a lot more seriously and, and listen more effectively to what you have to say. And then And then it's like it's imagination. I have to think about, okay, if I was 10, like what would I be – able to comprehend about this, and I'm sure I also said in, in the other podcast about it, the, the challenge became not so much what to leave, put in the book, but as to what to leave out. Because when I learned about graphic design in college, we studied the history, there are all these important <laughs> historical moments and contributions in the history of graphic design, which is mainly the 20th century, that I did not want to get into. With a 10 year old, war propaganda, mm. pornography, sex sells. Mm. Um, and in fact, I didn't want to make any of it about selling something. Really? That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, really it is hard. hard. I mean, you know, we touch on it a little bit, but not really. It's more about form and content and concept and typography. What is like, think about the alphabet. Do you realize what a miracle the alphabet is? and how it's used. But, you know, message sending and...
1: It's really, for me, sort of a blueprint for creating visual language in a lot of ways. Right. I learned a lot reading it. I learned about numbers and
2: and the sort of history of numbers. I mean, I learned a lot, too, because I I had to look all this stuff up. I didn't... Because I thought, all right, who created the written word? That's pretty important. And I didn't know. You know, you do a lot of research, and then you figure out, all right... Now I've got to explain this to a 10 to 12-year-old kid.
1: Had um, Raquel written Wonder at that point?
2: She was writing it at the time, which I didn't even realize till towards the end because she, I forget the context, but we put the cover of Wonder in Go, which I think was a way of showing something metaphorically without showing it. Literally.
1: Well, that's one of the things I love about the book that there are visual examples for everything that you talk about, so people can not just read it but actually see it and learn it from examples.
2: Yeah, and it's and they're all examples of real, actual printed work.
1: So, did Raquel also edit it? Because you know she has that way of talking through the eyes of a child that's so and
2: and she actually had she actually had children. So you know every now and then i mean i can't think of it oh there's a spread where i'm trying to teach the difference between sincerity and irony you know to a kid and using two different words and then depicting the words in different ways oh uh, it it was uh something like fastidious and filthy i think it it was a different one but she she was like uh Let's not use fastidious. That's too sort of complicated. And so we, we changed it. A
1: word with many syllables. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then there are the projects for, for the the reader to do at the end. And she was really great about coming up with some of those.
1: Yeah, they're really fun. You added new material to the paperback version. Yeah. Talk about what is different.
2: Well, what's different is the timeline in the front. And I have to say, like, Workman approached me about doing this. And again, it was the middle of the pandemic, and I get this email from them sort of out of the blue, and, and they said, you know, we never did a paperback version. Do you want to? And I said, sure. And they said, we'll treat it as a new publication, and you can fiddle with it a little bit. Like, we have four extra pages that we can put in it, because now we don't have the end papers, and you can use... And so I expanded, there's a timeline, just a a couple little uh, highlights of the history of graphic design. and I was able to put uh, two more spreads of them in. What things did you add? I added the on-off button, um, which I didn't even realize is a combination of a one and a zero. Ah. And I ended with the street painting, both in Washington and in New York City of Black Lives Matter in the street. Because that was just such a brilliant use of graphic design. At that point, there was a different editor I was working with because Raquel had had left to pursue her career. And I said, is this too political? They said, well, let me check and we'll get back to you. And they said, let's do it.
1: That's great. It's an opportunity to teach kids while they're learning about graphic design, about the power of of imagery. Yeah what this means it to our society a, and our culture. Yeah. Jim, I have one last question for you. Okay. Thor, Love and Thunder, mm-hmm. will have just come out when this interview is published. Okay. Are you excited about seeing the film? And any predictions for the storyline?
2: Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm excited about seeing it because I'm going to see it with you. <laughs> 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 um, I'm trying to think what I've heard. I haven't even seen the—I haven't tracked this one that much. I know that Jane becomes the new Thor, or at least at some point. Yes. Which is a theme in the comics. And that Christian Bale plays some— Crazy freaky villain. Creepy looking villain. Yeah, very creepy looking.
1: Speaking of creepy, I actually wanted to ask you about your new cover that you're designing for Brett, Easton Ellis. Next spring it's coming out. It's called The Shards. Sounds rather sinister as well.
2: Yeah. It's it's a very personal book for him. It's a it's a prequel to Less Than Zero. I'm thrilled with the cover. I think he is too, because he just post I think he just posted it on Twitter. It's really interesting. It's, it's. I would say it's one of the first sort of cinematic covers that I've done that sort of involves kind of sequential imagery. I I'm, I'm really excited about Running it. Running to
1: Instagram after this,
2: yeah. Interview. He's and again, I mean, my God, I've worked with him and for him since the I think The Informers in 1995,
1: 96. Oh, I lied. I do have one last question for you All before right. before we sign off. You also have designed the upcoming Cormac McCarthy yeah. books, because there's two. And I have seen those listeners, and they are magnificent. Talk just a little bit, if you can. Give us a little sure. tease about what you've done sure. with these novels. Well,
2: first of all, as a publishing house at Canoff, we were just so thrilled that he delivered this manuscript. He's been working on it for a long time. He's 88 years old. We didn't know if we were ever actually going to get it. It's it's complicated. It's a two-book story. And one of the books is called The Passenger, and the other book is called Stella Maris. And they're the story of a brother and a sister. It's complicated, but, you know, there's mathematics, there's deep-sea diving, there's the atomic bomb. There are all these themes in it. And the brief to me was, we're going to publish them individually. Then we're going to, then we're going to publish them together in a box. I mean, it all has to look like it goes together. But both the individual jackets and the box set, when they're together, the books have to look like they belong together.
1: And when they're apart, they have to look like they can stand on their own.
2: Right. But they all, I to me, they also have to look like they need each other, mm. which is a big theme in the book.
1: Will they be coming out at the same time, or are they coming out separately?
2: Staggered over three months. So the passenger comes out in October of 22. The second Stella Morris comes out in November of 22. And then the box set comes out in December.
1: Chip Kidd, thank you so much for making so much work that matters in the world. And thank you for joining me today on Design
2: Matters. Well, thank you, my friend and my sister.
1: Chip's upcoming exhibit, Batman, Black and White, will be opening at Mica in Baltimore this fall. And his latest book, Go! A Kid's Guide to Graphic Design, can be found wherever books are sold. You can keep up with all things Chip Kidd and all his latest projects at chipkid.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman.